I'm Dr. Scott Lyons, and you're watching or listening to The Gently Used Human. What is the true price? What is the true price for admission for laughter that moves you to tears? Well, my guest today, Margaret Cho, is not just a comedian. She's a force of nature in the world of entertainment and advocacy. A five-time Grammy and Emmy nominee, Margaret's voice has blazed trails for underrepresented groups and reshaped the landscape for American comedy. In our conversation, we explore the curious, subversive edges of Margaret's comedy, where she addresses the absurdity of culture, life during the pandemic, her love for TikTok and reality shows, and even her fascination with pimple popping. We dive into how she navigates Asian hate through her humor, her journey of healing from addiction, and the transformative power of choice in finding a sense of belonging. So, are you ready to laugh, reflect, and maybe even squirm a little? Join me for a roller coaster ride of insight and revelations with the incomparable Margaret Cho. Here we go. Margaret Cho, welcome to the Gently Used Human. I mean, I don't even know where to begin. You are such a fucking icon. Oh. You are a total inspiration in my life. You are a radical, amazing comedian, actor, musician, advocate, entrepreneur, five-time Grammy and Emmy nominee, no big deal. You're just all around fucking amazing. And thank you for coming on the show. Well, thank you very much. I love that. That's so amazing. Thank you. Yeah. I would love to start with a little story, a little gush story, and a thank you from the bottom of my heart. When I was in my early 20s, I took my dad to your show as a warm-up to coming out to him. Mm-hmm. And your show was so brilliant. He laughed. He cried. It was in Minnesota. And after the show, we took a walk and I came out to him. And he was just in such a joyous mood that his response was, whatever you need, I'm here oh, for you. Oh, I love that. Well, I'm so glad. That's really fantastic. Yeah. So I just want to say thank you. You've been truly such an inspiration in my life. Your comedy is genius. And I want to even talk about like, my goodness, you've been in comedy for 40 years. That's an incredible journey. I was wondering if you can talk us through like what's evolved in the world of comedy, both in the field of it and for yourself. Like what's been your journey of evolution? It's I really grew up in the industry and the art form. And so I've seen it go through a lot of changes and I've gone through a lot of changes. And I think what's much more interesting is that nowadays comedians are taken a lot more seriously than they used to be. You know, there used to be sort of like this idea that comedy was really just sort of frivolous entertainment that was somewhat meaningless yet necessary. You know, there are always a lot of appreciation for comedians, but at the same time, you didn't take what they were saying as seriously as you do now, where when you look at anything that happens in the media, we look to comedians first to comment on it, whatever that is, you know, and so that's the biggest change. Although there's been an element of that, but it was only certain people that we'd ask that of like somebody like Lenny Bruce, you know, that it was rare that you would ask somebody like Richard Pryor. And nowadays, it's really almost every comedian has to weigh in on social issues or else we're avoiding it. So I think it's valuable. We've become a lot more valuable. I appreciate the art form a lot more. I understand it more than I used to as a a young person, but I understand life a lot more, I think, than I did as a young person. So those two go hand in hand. What is it that you understand more about comedy and yourself? As you're talking about. I think that what is really important to understand about humor is that it's ultimately a coping mechanism. And so it's the search for hope. And when you can laugh about something, then you're really on your way to healing. So having a sense of humor is really a very adapted way of coping with trauma. And it's a way that we look towards like healing in our daily life. So I think it's really valuable 
And I think it's really meaningful. So I always really am grateful that I have the ability to do it. Also, not just for my work, but just in my life. Yeah. Was your acts or what you created part of your own healing process? Or was it more dedicated towards other people's healing process? I think it was really not conscious. Like it was never really conscious or geared towards looking for healing. Not until a little bit later when I started to do longer shows, when I was outside of doing club shows and more doing theater shows and then doing sort of longer extended performances. And then I was looking towards, oh, I, like in the 90s, I was really talking about healing from eating disorders, healing from alcoholism and drug addiction, healing from a feeling of not belonging, healing from being an outsider within my industry as an Asian American queer woman. So those are things that were very conscious, looking towards talking about stories of healing, making sense of healing in the 90s. Nowadays, it's a little bit more complicated. Nowadays, it's talking about aging, talking about menopause. Still in the realm of being a queer Asian American woman, which that hasn't changed. But what has changed is my age. What has changed are the sort of demons, demons that I'm fighting that are not as obvious you know, when you're dealing with active alcoholism, active drug addiction, active eating disorders, those are very obvious foes that you have to face. But in old age, I'm not that old, but I'm the youngest <laughs> an old person can be. That's 55. So that <laughs> that's like really an achievement. When you get to that point where you have sort of a arsenal of things to whip out when you need to fight these very old foes. Then other things come, like aging, like creaky body, mental health, things like that. That's a very real thing. Yeah. And I mean, there. I remember the story you told in Northampton, Massachusetts years ago, and it was about driving in LA traffic mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. having to go to the bathroom. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And by the way, I thought of you about six months ago when I was stuck in traffic and had to go to the bathroom yeah. so bad. And I was yeah. like, what would Margaret Cho do? The worst. The worst. It's the the worst. worst. It's so humbling (laughs) and so human. And yeah, it's a very real thing. And it reminds you of how human we really are. But it's so funny too. whenever we have that. It's really funny. Yeah. I mean, and this is such a great example of how you've spent so many years letting people into your life, letting people into like the most annihilating and intense stories and I saw the other day you had even people into your like MTV cribs in your house, which is a fun episode to watch. And I'm wondering, like, what are your boundaries between what's public and what's private? I think that you have to have boundaries that are set for you. Like to me, it's not a problem to let people into my home. I've shot a lot of content in my house. I've had really a very familiar kind of like that to me is not a boundary crossing thing. You know, my boundaries are more solid when it comes to just interpersonal relationships or people that I'm like intimate with and that kind of stuff. That's where it becomes much more defined, like what I need to do. Like, I think also for me, this time in my life, at least for this moment, I think that a sexually intimate relationship that is like somebody that I live with is really (laughs) a real violation of boundaries. I have sex. And I have intimacy and I have romance, but all those things are really compartmentalized and like very (laughs) rigid. I don't want to live with anybody I'm having sex with. That's my solid boundary for right now. So everybody that lives here, it's platonic or unless it's animal, then it's very all encompassing love. But it's really like to me, that's never worked. You know, and intimacy and romance and sex all in the once and living together, it's really, you know, it's a disaster. So I now have created boundaries in my life where we're intimate, we're sexual, we're romantic, we live in different places, and it really works. I don't know why, but it works. I can totally respect that. I have a lot of friends who've been together 30, 40 years, separate places, and it really works. It's It's so so nice. nice to have a little space. That interdependency with space. I think it's really beautiful. I mean, I know that it's unusual. People sort of always think, oh, well, you know, you're going to 
grow old alone. I'm like, that's the point. That's the best <laughs> part. That's what I'm going for. You're going to die alone. Mm, yeah. That's why <laughs> I, I, if I had a choice in yeah. dying, which you know nobody does, really, I think I would rather do it by myself. I think that seems to me the right thing. But it's really hard on people in my life who cannot imagine what it would be like to not be partnered. Like my parents really hate it. Everybody in my family hates it. Also, like a lot of people in my life are just like, well, you know, you should be seeing somebody. You should, you know, and it's a very scary thing for people to look at somebody who's very happy alone. And the truth is, I'm not alone. I'm actually very social and very busy. But I do have a nice place, as you know, is shown in cribs to come back to <laughs> on my own, which is really nice. That's great. And in terms of the, how the boundaries work in relation to what gets brought on stage and what doesn't in your life, how do you define that? I think that if it is about speaking of a shared experience with somebody else, then I actually like gone and asked the person you know, I'm going to talk about this. Is that a problem for you? Also, if there's not an ability to do that, which sometimes there's not, then you kind of work around. It's a workaround where you're not calling them out. Like I'm not into that aspect of like, you know, exposing people or whatever. That's not my point of view. I just want to talk about what's happened to me. So the amount of damage control I can do around that is the best. I think that's really fair. Over time, actually, that's actually worked out very well. You know, like I realized, oh, okay, well, I can't talk about this. If I'm talking about my side of the story, then it's fair game. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Has that been like a lesson you've learned of like, oops, I crossed a line of sharing too much from my own personal life or sharing something from someone else's? I think it's real. Yeah, I think it's really because people have different levels of comfort around what they want out there or things that are said and you know, like I had this stupid story. This is an example. I was dating somebody and I had a joke about how I was really badly constipated. So in order to have anal sex, you have to go in my asshole and pull out every piece of shit like a stone and then toss them like it was the I Ching. So I told this story in my comedy and the person, he was really upset. He cried. He what? cried. And I'm like, Bitch, I'm talking about my shit. Literally. <laughs> Bitch, this has nothing to do with you. He cried. And it's like, what the fuck is wrong with you? Like, why are you crying? But obviously yeah. that wasn't the person for me. But it's just a funny, that's an example of somebody yeah. who felt like his boundaries were crossed. As I was talking about something that is meant to, and it's not a joke about you. It's a joke about the I Ching. <laughs> So it's, and it's a good fucking joke at that. It's a good joke. So it's like, why are <laughs> yeah. you crying? It's like that Jonathan Venice. Why are you crying? No, it's very, he's also my good friend. And yeah, Jonathan has taught me a lot also about telling the story. You know, I taught Jonathan about telling the story and then Jonathan, now they teach me about telling the story. What was it that you taught them and what they taught you? Well, Jonathan, I think taught me how to appreciate the story because every time I would see them and we would talk. They would say, I love that story. <laughs> I love that story. I love, and everything, when they said that, that made me realize everything is a story that you could love, that you could appreciate. And so I actually forced Jonathan to do stand up comedy. So now they're a very accomplished stand up comedian, but I, they used to do my hair all those years ago. So then I made them come with me to shows and I forced them to do comedy, which is a great. So I'm very pleased at how things have turned out for them, but it's really beautiful. So yeah, it's like, tell the story, tell the story. That's my thing. But, and I also want to be aware of other people's feelings, but people often have wildly inappropriate ideas of what's their story. You know, that's also like this person that I was seeing who was upset about the I Ching, like that's not their story. No. You know, but for uh, some reason he took ownership of that story. So it was very weird. 
I want to take a moment to give a loud shout out to the Embody Lab, which is uh, one of the most incredible resources for body-based and somatic therapies. This show is all about healing, and the Embody Lab does exactly that. Whether you're on your own journey of transformation and discovery, or enhancing your skill sets in your career as like a coach or a therapist, a body worker, or really any career where you are supporting other gently used humans, the Embody Lab is your place for deep, inspiring, and impactful workshops, certificates, masterclasses, and an incredible community of like-minded folks. I love the Embody Lab. And so do so many other people that call it a platform to come home to over and over again. The Embody Lab is giving my listeners an exclusive offer, a one-time 10% off code to enhance your embodied well-being. All you have to do is go to theembodylab.com and use the code GENTLYUSE10 at checkout. Yeah, that really talks about a certain boundary crossing in terms of an enmeshment. Have you ever felt like a joke that you've shared has gone too far from your own personal perspective? Because other people have their perspective. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know because I've never felt like it was too far because I have very different views about what I am comfortable sharing. Like I'm kind of comfortable sharing anything and it's not because I also look at it as like my life is a evolving work of art and there are different eras that you go through and there are things that you would do then and not do now. And I've gone through so much therapy and done so much work on my mental health and my sobriety and things like that. So I don't think anything is too far. So yeah, I don't know. I mean, I don't know. I'm like, again, like something like the I Ching story whatever. Those are examples of people getting really upset about like things that don't make sense to me because I'm open, but I'm also, when you are that open, that's also a subterfuge because it's like, I decide what you get to see because I'm so incredibly uh, forthright about things that I'm saying that I'm also creating the mythology for you to believe in. And because I'm so open, quote unquote, open about it, you're not going to question me. It's another way of being closed off is being very forthcoming about your truth. Oh my gosh, say more, because that's brilliant. I never thought about it that way. That's another way of deciding what people think about you is by this self-incriminating confessional style of communication that is really controlling because you're controlling the narrative of what people think and believe about who you are and what you're doing. And so through that, you can act all kind of, you know, crazy manipulation behind it. (laughs) Wow. Is that what you discovered in therapy? That and with writing and, you know, really like, and I lie to myself about who I am. You know, it's like a very tricky thing. You know, when you realize the complexity of being and yourself and like over time you look through your life and you see all the things that you've done and you go, I was like lying to myself about so much stuff. So it's really interesting. But yeah, I think that through therapy, through writing, through like different kinds of 12-step things, through healing modalities, all that, like you really discover what it's all about. Is the line, did it show up in the ways or in the material of your stories? I think it wasn't as, the line is really more like how I feel about something, how I felt about certain things, how I felt about things like lying about like, really intimate things like sex, like what was pleasurable, lying about things that I thought were meaningful and sexually like invigorating and exciting. Like I I didn't like at all. And like, I remember I went through this phase of like being very adventurous and I still am pretty adventurous, but then I would be in these sexual situations where I was like, I don't even know why I'm doing this. Like this guy in North Hollywood, he is nice. I don't know what North Hollywood has to do with it. But he was really, it was really into like putting hand sanitizer on my leg and setting it on fire. And that was like sexual. And I'm like, how is this sexual? Like, I don't know what I'm doing. Like, I'm like, what? And it wasn't abusive. It wasn't like, this was like totally consensual. Totally like, 
I'm fine. I'm here for this. But then I'm like, we're doing it. I'm like, what? (laughs) (laughs) What? And I was like thinking about this actually the other day, like, yeah. Why did I do that? And it was like lying to myself because I wanted to, you know, Madonna's sex book had just come out. I was trying to figure out like what this, I want to be adventurous. I want to do things that are like, you know, part of this narrative of like, I'm just wild. But then you're like, what am I doing here? Why is this? It's not exciting to me. I can't figure out what the thread of like sexuality is to get to it. I don't know. So part of like this idea of adventure, I also know like, well, there's things that I can get into. Like I can get into a power exchange. I can get into sensation play. But at the same time, I'm also, some things make me really lost. And then I realize, oh, I'm totally lying about this, that I don't have a connection to this. Yeah. How long did it take you to start to say no? Or not interested? Well, when I was in it, I was like really confused. And then I got out of it and then I realized, oh, this isn't for me. But then I also really liked all of that group of friends. And so they were really, to me, very fun. And, you know, I enjoyed the idea of it. And I still really love BDSM communities. I still really love the art form. And I still really, that is an art form, all of the different things that they do and I still consider myself a member of that community. Uh, while I have to really specifically pick and choose what things I identify with and engage in. Yeah. It makes me think of like, sometimes we like the idea of something, but then our body says no, or there's like that dissonance. Or sometimes, I don't know, I found this sometimes of like, I liked it for the story. Absolutely. <laughs> and those things are totally valid. Yeah. Those things are totally valid. You can like something because of the added mythology it gives you for your personal odyssey. That's great. You know, those things are really important, but does it actually really have a visceral reaction where you want to engage in it? No. Mm. No. I remember a story you told, and I can't remember what tour this was, maybe in Victorious Show, was it? Where you talked about being in a chair with a madam and she was going to like, she had a giant leather strap on. Was mm-hmm. that, which. Yeah. That was and, probably notorious. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 And I remember you saying like you were all into it and then you unzipped the mask and you're like, <laughs> no. Like, yeah. No. I, I mean, you know, you just kind of go, is it, what's going on? <laughs> like, that's a funny thing. Like when yeah. BDSM doesn't work and the spell is broken, it's so disappointing. Yeah. Yeah. It's so disappointing. So like, how do you keep the spell going? Well, you only engage in things that are erotic to you. And mm. so that takes a lot of exploration. That takes a lot of discussion and talking. And sometimes even that discussion and talking can really break the spell. So it's very elusive. Mm. But when you can do it, it's really magic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Extending beyond sort of a norm, like mm-hmm. breaking a norm, mm-hmm. which brings me to a subject matter which I want to talk to you about, which is like your style of comedy. Mm -hmm. Because how would you describe it? I know how I would describe it from getting so many opportunities to receive it, but I'm so curious how you would define it or describe it. I know that it's evolved, but... It's evolved. Like It's really self-exploration that is a questioning and incriminating but also you're like not afraid to glorify yourself too a little bit, you know, because it's fun. So it's about like looking through adult life with a childlike innocence that allows you to play with, you know, discovery, playing with this idea, also like questioning what's happening. So for me, it's like going into it very much in a way that's unafraid of incrimination, but also unafraid of discovery. So that to me is really fun. I have a good time with comedy because I'm still sort of trying to discover what it is and trying to like master it too and have a good time. Like I'm not so interested in being the authority. I think certain comedians are very interested. It's very male too, where they want to be the authority. Of things. So these are guys like 
cool. I think that's their brand. You know, that's the guys that they, everybody checks in on them. If anything happens, they want everybody wants to know what they have to say. They're the ones teaching a master class on comedy. Yeah. Like, <laughs> you know, I'm not interested in that because I also like, I'm not the authority. Like, I don't know. Like, I'm just trying to make sense of it. And so that's what I think I do. Mm. I think that's a brilliant description. Can I add some of what I experienced from you yeah. for so many years? Which mm-hmm. is like thought provoking as all hell. Mm-hmm. Thank you. <laughs> like, and subversive. Mm-hmm. Like, pushing people's comfort zone. I like, do you know the phrase like tolerance, building people's discomfort tolerance? Mm, yes. Like it's a stress, a resilience technique. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And one of the things I felt like you did from my experience watching for so many years was like, oh, now I'm a little more comfortable. Mm, like mm-hmm. now I'm even more comfortable. I guess that's the idea of subversive is like to challenge things and make people think about it and expand their comfort in navigating it. Mm. Like mm. racism, homophobia. Yeah. Like I don't remember so many comedians talking about it the way that you have. No, that's good. Thank you. Thank you. And I'm just curious, like what's that journey like to push the subversive envelope? I think it's really – I don't do it that consciously, you know, so it's never – like, oh, I'm going to talk about this and challenge this. It's never that. It's just that I'm I'm genuinely curious. Like, what does this mean? And like, why is this something that we're always thinking about? You know, and so to me, it's more about like, oh, it's, it's just curious to me, but it's never like a way, because I want to, again, be the authority yeah. on a topic yeah. or be the be all end all of something. It's more just I'm curious. Yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. I appreciate that it's like not intentionally going in as a subversive whipping no, or no. cracking open. No, no, but no. Like, but I love that it's actually emerging from your curiosity and in the curiosity or the willingness to step into the territories maybe people don't get curious about or talk about their curiosity in, mm-hmm. that that's the opening of the egg, so yeah, to speak. Yeah, I think so. Yes. Mm. I love that because there's something – Interesting too about like the evolution of subversive humor works, mm-hmm. or which is like once you talk about it, it's not as subversive, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. or I mean, things remain subversive, but less and less. And yes. then, how do you keep working in that way? But I really hear it's actually coming from a realm of curiosity, as yeah, 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 I love that. So, I would love to hear about your new show live and live it. Like, can mm-hmm. you tell us about the inspiration of it? What's in it? What we can expect? Well, it comes out of like the discovery of, oh, I've never stayed home for 35 years. So this is really interesting to actually have had to stay home during the pandemic. Like I never stayed home. I didn't know how to. And there were like so many rooms in my house that I didn't even go into because I was never home. And I never quite unpacked my bags. Like, it was weird. Like, I just was such a touring comedian for all of my adult life and some of my teens that I didn't know how to have a home life. And then, so doing that, like staying at home, kind of more understanding who I was as a homebody and really loving that. And then from that perspective, looking at the world completely go crazy with the pandemic, with and the thing that makes me the most angry of like the blaming of drag queens for the <laughs> harming children, which made me so mad. And so that's so the ridiculous. livid part of like being yeah. so furious about that and then being furious about having rights to abortion taken away because abortion is something that I was really like very, very strongly in favor of, strongly in favor of like pro-choice, but you know, rights over our own bodies. So just being angry about that and wanting to talk about that in my comedy, really explore that. That's where people sometimes get uncomfortable. Well, so I talk a lot about abortion in my show and my experiences with it. And some, you know, even if you're pro-choice, there is a level of like polite society that goes, okay, well, you can talk about it, but don't talk about it too much. You know, and that's where I think where I would say there's resistance because yes, if you're pro-choice, that's really an established important thing. But again, we don't want to hear the details, which I'm very much is about the details. 
you know, so that's where I think people get uncomfortable and scared. But also, I'm not willing to turn away from that. You know, I think it's really important to acknowledge, like, we have to allow people to do what they want with their bodies. That's very, very important. So there's that. There's talking about how the pandemic really affected the relationship that Asian Americans have in society to society. So there's a lot about that. So there's so much about kind of coming to realize that the world has gone nuts. Maybe I've gotten sort of like really nuts too with it and like angry. So, you know, it's being angry, but also being very deliberate and lyrical about that anger. And so that's my contribution. Lyrical in what way? Lyrical, like astute and like kind of trying to make sense of like, well, you know what? Christians are so mad about drag queens, but Jesus himself is wearing a full length gown (laughs) from Chico's. It's a duster (laughs) and a gown, part of the Golden Girls collection. (laughs) Hashtag thank you for being a friend. So it's like, what the, you know, and like the whole, like also the Christianity in general is the most bizarre BDSM religion where you're like looking to a lot of the iconography that's totally familiar at Folsom street fair. <laughs> like <laughs> what? And you're ta- calling us perverse. Like, look, like, it's not drag queens that are harming children. It's church that harm children. And if you really cared about kids, you would get rid of guns because that's doing the most harm to children. And it, so it's, it's just like looking at, very, to me, it's very obvious the hypocrisy that exists within the right wing and the conservatives. The creepiness of somebody like the new speaker of the house who shares his porn sites that he goes to with his son. Like that to me is so like creepy is that your accountability for your porn viewing, for your accountability partner is your son. That's like the creepiest, weirdest thing like you're sharing that with your kids like that's creepy so don't be coming for like the gay community as being groomers when you yourself it's coming from inside the house the speaker of the house so it's like very nuts this show is also brought to you by the absolutely stunning and powerful tools for transformation that are created by omala Even the name Omala transports you to a place of flow and vitality. These are some of my favorite products ever, like an amazing color-changing yoga mat that responds to your temperature and presence and reflects back your posture in real time. They have this incredible smelling skin balm candle that heats up to activate all the essential oils and vitamins that your skin has been craving for. I mean, look, if I could live in a giant bath of this candle, I would 100% do it. They also have these journals that lead you into a profound insight, and then you can plant those journals to create a stunning flower garden. I mean, damn, if that's not both deep and inventive, I don't know what is. If you're someone who desires to live in a luxurious flow of life and who believes in transformative wellness, then you have to check out Omala. Omala is giving my listeners an exclusive discount to treat yourself to something that is as special as you, boo. All you have to do is go to omala.com, that's O-M-A-L-A.com. Use the discount code DrScott10 at checkout. And a portion of every purchase goes to an incredible charity. You got this. I mean, I see that as such like the value of the platform of comedy too. It's like you get to be an observer to the absurdity of our culture of the world and have space to share that absurdity in ways like we get to go, oh my gosh, oh yeah. I never even thought about that or I never got a chance to really unpack that in the way Mm -hmm. that you do that. Yes. So that's what I'm trying to do, like, is really connect those things and speak about that with anger that has a lilting quality, a lyrical quality, alliteration, have fun with it. Yeah. 
So what did you do during the pandemic? Like, were you writing? Were you making music? Were you... Both. I think, yeah, both. All of the above. All of that, you know, is making music. I still make music. I still have a lot to do in that realm that I need to finish up. So there's that. I built a lot of wonderful things for my cats. I had a very active home life. I made a lot of bread. I made a lot of pizza, which is nice. So yeah, I established myself as a homebody, which I also really love. And so now that's a big aspect of my life that I don't want to change. And so my touring has changed too. Like I don't go out for long periods of time. I am back and forth. And so I have a very active home life, which I'm very grateful for. Nice. Did you do any performing on like Zoom or yeah. any of that? How did that go? That was good. That was really good. And that was a very different way of performance and a different way yeah. of communicating, which I love too. So that's great, you know, and I got to really enjoy things like TikTok, which very special. I love TikTok. I love, and that also has given rise to another addiction. I have a pretty severe phone addiction, which is really embarrassing <laughs> to don't like. But What's embarrassing love, about it? Was yeah. I love it. Is oh, that, I, really love, I love my phone. I love TikTok. I love the way that the algorithm really caters to every aspect of you. And like you kind of discover more about what you like. I realized I just like cooking and people pulling out earwax. It's so <laughs> gross, but I can't when did, stop. When did you discover that? Just, just by recently? looking, at, just recently, just looking at just TikTok, re- you can't, an- <laughs> I can't believe how much the algorithm is telling me you really like to watch people pull stuff out of their ear and I can't deny it. What about other orifices? Is it just the ear? I think there's a little bit of pimple popping, but I always, I go right to the ear for some reason. The pimple popping, I can get real into, and I love Sandra, like she's a friend of mine. She's a great doctor. She does great stuff. I realize so much of that too is about class. Like it's about class and how people who don't have the money aren't going to question things that happen with their body. And that it's like very depressing too. Mm. Like how we'll ignore those things until it becomes a real crisis. And so that like a lot of Pimple Poppy, the show, it really is a study about class and awareness about class. I didn't even know there was a show. There's like a TV show or like yeah. a- um, Dr. Pimple shit. Popper. It's like got like 15 seasons. I mean, it's got almost what? more seasons than like Dancing with the Stars. It's like one of the most popular reality franchises. It's almost as popular as something like 90 Day Fiance. What? Which is also an obsession of mine too, which is, <laughs> that's a weird one where you can really go deep. What do you think the psychology is that people are so interested in watching pimple popping? It's a lot to do with class. It's, it's a lot passing. to do with class-based yeah. bias, how we uh-huh. have this bias over people like that are of a certain class. Like it's really, it's very interesting But ear cleaning, it's so gross and it really freaks me out. I have one of those ear things too with like a camera that Uh you can like, and I start doing it and I'm like, oh, I can't even look. I can't. It's so horrible. That shocks me a little bit, I have to say, that that's what grosses you out from some of the stories I've heard you tell on a stage. (laughs) I know. It's the ear stuff that really freaks me out. I don't know why. That's the one part that I'm like, I can't, but I can. I get real curious. Wow. I mean, it's always interesting what we're comfortable with and what grosses us out. Yeah. When I was in school and we had to do cadaver labs, Mm. it was behind a glass wall. But I would take my dinner because that was the only time I had and mm. nobody else was eating. I was like, it just doesn't gross me out. Oh, yeah, yeah. That's interesting. I mean, that is sort of like that. You always have that in like a sh- maybe a, a movie or a TV show that's like a true crime thing. There's always the cop that's eating Yeah. when they're looking yeah. at the crime scene. Yeah, that was me. Yeah. I mean, Minus the cop. <laughs> when you're used to it, you don't connect the, the idea of like eating as being like with the body mm-hmm. or... Mm-hmm. Whatever. I worked with cadavers briefly when I was in nursing school. I was in nursing school for like one semester. I was not good at it. And I was like, it was terrible. I was really not good. I dropped out. But I did 
work with cadavers briefly and it wasn't behind glass we were actually just with and we had old specimens so they oh, were very like smelly so yeah very smelly like formaldehyde mm-hmm. and the chemical smell really got to me oh not the body the body no. was so i mean they were just like kind of also they wrapped the faces so you couldn't and they didn't have skin so you didn't have a sense of like connecting with where the skin was there but it was like part it was segmented so you could see all of the structures underneath the skin yeah. so it yeah. didn't seem like a person no no there's a, a sort of depersonalization of it that, yeah that happens that's pretty deep that was like oh this isn't freak me out it's not it didn't even it didn't scare me or it was just kind of like oh you know we're using these specimens to figure out and it was more just like oh this is going to be so hard to identify all of these parts for the test yeah. that was more yeah. the anxiety rather than oh this is the human body yeah 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 oh yeah oh that smell even in the it's like glue yeah but that's not the death smell death it's so far removed from death because it's like it's more just like the lab smell that really bothered me but i've never smelled the smell of decomposition of the body yeah i haven't either so you went to nursing school but you were already doing comedy at that time because you started in your teens yes and then did you realize maybe nursing wasn't your jam? It wasn't. It was so gross. It just was like, I mean, it's so much work. It's so much work. It's so it much really work is. that I just was God too lazy. Nurses. Yeah, yeah. It's, I was too lazy. <laughs> I couldn't do it. I couldn't even do the school. It was too lazy. I thought briefly, oh, I'll go and be a mortuary tech. So oh, wow. I applied for financial aid at Mortuary Arts School in San Francisco, and then comedy started to really take off. So there was no need for that but that would have been a cool job i thought yeah i was gonna say is that when comedy started to roll for you is like it was either mortuary work or comedy yeah because i like the idea of like makeup and like reconstructing you know making people look good to me was interesting the aspect of it like creating faces to like put on for their funerals and stuff like to me that was like appealing not the grief and all that stuff that didn't appeal to me but like to me like oh to present the body creatively like those things were interesting always a creative yes yes <laughs> i want to go back for a moment and talk about a few more details of your upcoming show which is really exciting and i'm curious one of the aspects you talked about is like post-covid and the influx of like asian hate mm-hmm. and i'm curious how you navigate that through the realm of comedy like how do you um yeah yeah, it's really scary well a lot of it had to do with like so much fear that i had around my parents who were in their 80s and talking to them about the racism that they might incur in the street and how unaffected they were because asian americans of that age have dealt with so much trauma throughout their lives that this phase of asian hate was nothing you know, that they were wow. like really very unfazed. They're like, well, you know, if you grew up in the wars that we saw and the tremendous racism that we dealt with in the 60s coming to America, this ain't shit. So it really taught me a lot. And so I talk about that in the show. I talk about how I was just so afraid of it and how I also experienced some things happening, you know, that it was really scary in the moment as well. So. Can you share more about that? Yeah, I was in Florida and I was walking this little girl (laughs) in the street and I came across a convoy of about 50 semi-trucks who were all flying the no Kung flu, no China virus. (laughs) And they tried to run me over like Mad Max and it was so scary. I'm like trying to film it while it's happening. It's really hard to film a hate crime in progress, which I discovered. Yeah, yeah, I can imagine. Very terrifying. (laughs) And I was like, should I call the police? I don't know. I didn't get physically hurt, but I was so traumatized. Mm, So it was like one of those things like, where am I victimized here? I don't know if the police are going to help. What helps? The only thing that helps is telling the story, you know? So that's what I come away with, you know, being like this. It's like, I was a victim of a hate crime, but I wasn't really hurt. I wasn't physically Mm. hurt. So where is my damage like that's really what i'm navigating in my show is like when do i valid to like complain about this well i think in comedy yes 
This is yeah. where I can yeah, yeah. talk about that trauma as a trauma. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, you know, not only is it the experience itself, but then there's the generational trauma that gets triggered. Yes. And that's real. Yeah. And that's real. That's like a Ooh. very real thing. And then, you know, like to try to talk about it and like, how do we process it? Well, to me, like comedy has been the best way. Yeah. So that's yeah. a way for me to engage in this idea of like, it's, it's a hate crime, but it only really traumatized me just a little bit. So I got a little mm -hmm. sunburn from it. You know, it's like a little, <laughs> like how many degrees of it, like, you know, how racism affects us, like how bad is like by degrees. And so like talking about it in that way has been the best way, like in my comedy to make sense of it. Mm. Have other people reached out to you as a, and said, like, just thank you for talking about it in a way that is again through comedy yes, healing yes. for them. Yeah, people. Yeah, definitely, it's great because it also makes people recognize. Oh, these things of like these microaggressions when they become even more obvious, and then how do I cope with it? You know, and then so that's been really great. People talking about. I didn't even realize that that's something that I felt. Mm. That's cool. Mm. That's amazing that you're able to offer so many people that those opportunities for healing through your curiosity, through your play, through your humor, yeah. through your lividness. That's nice. <laughs> I'd like to just kind of wrap it up with talking, one of the things you talked about, and I know I've read about some stuff, and you mentioned it here, was around the addiction. Mm -hmm. And I was hoping you could talk to us about like your own healing process through that, where your work and your creativity also was a part of that. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, I think like, I mean, that's the thing is I've dealt with alcoholism and some form of addiction for my entire adult life. And so, you know, I've been sober for quite a few years now, but I have to really work on it. Like, and I do a lot of my main modality of healing there is meditation. So I have a very strong meditation practice. It's a big part of my day every day. It's something that I've really worked on and that's really hard and doing that. And then I have, you know, do a lot of physical, you know, activity. I, I have a lot of animals. And so that's a great thing. I saw the cat casino. Yeah. It's such a nice cat <laughs> casino. They are the best, but you know, working on my sobriety is a mm -hmm. big part of my life. Mm. And it's something that is, you know, my work is like it's a side journey. My main job mm -hmm. ultimately I think is my sobriety because that's sort of what mm. it has to be. And then all the other avenues are just ways for me to have fun. Mm. So yeah, I really, I work on it. I really try to do the best that I can because I just don't want to fall back into it. It's hard. And that's like the main job, like all through my life. It's like, and it has nothing to do really with my success as an artist or, or not success as an artist. I think it's like so way too easy to say, oh, I fell into addiction because I was depressed about my career and I couldn't handle the fame or I didn't get the fame or I was too famous or whatever. <laughs> like it's just, it's almost <laughs> too easy to say that. That's actually not true. The thing is, is that I was beset by my addictive personality my whole life. And so that's been my main problem throughout everything. And my main foe is my addictive nature. And so that's like something that I've had to cope with. Everything else really was just a detail, but I've had to fight addiction all throughout. And now I think I've feel like I've had the solution, which is a strong meditation practice, a strong mental health, mental hygiene. So it works mm -hmm. out. Mm. Are you of the school... You know, like there's a whole rising theory and philosophy that like that addiction has a lot to do with the absence of belonging. Yes. Yes. Because uh, I, I heard you yes. mention that in the beginning of like that's been part of your healing journey too is like yes. the sense of belonging or not belonging. Right. So much of it is about it's fixated on not belonging or not being enough. Mm. Not all that sort of everything is not enough. Mm -hmm. And I like to look at like autobiographies of people who suffer from addiction. Like to me, that's really, it's almost 
like the most like hardcore that you can get mm. with mm. understanding the disease of it is just from yeah. somebody who suffers. Like, I don't know if it was helpful to him, but I really enjoyed Matthew Perry's autobiography. I thought it was really incredibly vivid of a description of what it was like to suffer from the disease of alcoholism. So astute and so smart. And again, somebody who had everything, yet it wasn't enough. So, and then you realize when you read books like that, you go, oh, well, you know, the myth of not being enough, nothing is enough. It truly is a myth because if anybody was enough, it was him really to have all the things that, you know, we think of success yet not enough. It's that external enoughness, but something still, the void within still hasn't been filled back up by like what's been truly missing, which is often ourselves. Right. It's very sad and very tough. And so I think that books like that are really helpful, you know, in understanding what it is. And I'm really, yeah, I'm very saddened by his story, but I found that it was really illuminating to look at what he was writing about and talk about. Yeah, it's it's devastating. Mm -hmm. What has been some of your main moments or tools in addition to meditation, towards that sense of belonging? I think it's that I had an understanding that I can decide whether I belong or not, Mm. that it's my decision. It's up to you. And you don't have to belong if you don't want to. And that it's totally okay not to, but that these are all just personal choices that we make, that being enough is a choice that you can choose to be enough, that it's all that. And so that is very empowering and it's very simple, but it's hard to implement. Yeah. Yeah. It is simple and hard to implement. And the agency of recognizing that we can step into belonging or step out and feeling that embodied sense of agency is so powerful. It's really powerful, but it's taken a lifetime for me to actually start to use it, which is really, but it's, I do, which is good. Yeah. Amazing. Margaret, thank you for being such an incredible inspiration and being such a wonder and such an important figure and icon in this world. Thank you. Thank you for being on The Gently Used Human. I hope everyone who's listening will join me in seeing Margaret's new show, Live and Livid. And it doesn't matter where you are, go on to her website, find where it is and fill it up and laugh your ass off and heal. I love it. Love it. Thank you, Margaret, so much. Thank you. Such a pleasure. Thank you for listening to the Gently Used Human podcast with Dr. Scott Lyons and friends. Visit GentlyUse.com for fun extras, including submitting your questions for advice from a Midwestern mom. And don't forget to spill the tea and gossip about the show with all your friends and frenemies. And show some love by giving us five stars and leaving a review in your favorite apps. This helps us connect with all the other gently used humans out there. Oh, and by the way, you look fierce today. <laughs>